Part Five of The Ice Palace by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was a particularly cold night. A sudden thaw had nearly cleared the streets the day before, but now they were traversed again with a powdery wraith of loose snow that travelled in wavy lines before the feet of the wind and filled the lower air with a fine particled mist. There was no sky, only a dark, ominous tent that draped in the tops of the streets and was, in reality, a vast approaching army of snowflakes, while over it all, chilling away the comfort from the brown and green glow of lighted windows and muffling the steady trot of the horse pulling their sleigh, interminably washed the north wind. It was a dismal town, after all, she thought, dismal. Sometimes, at night, it had seemed to her as though no one lived here. They had all gone long ago, leaving lighted houses to be covered in time by tombing heaps of sleet. Oh, if there should be snow on her grave, to be beneath great piles of it all winter long, where even her headstone would be a light shadow against the light shadows. Her grave, a grave that should be flower-strewn and washed with sun and rain. She thought again of those isolated country houses that her train had passed, and of the life there the long winter through, the ceaseless glare through the windows, the crust forming on the soft drifts of snow, finally the slow, cheerless melting in the harsh spring of which Roger Patton had told her. Her spring, to lose it forever, with its lilacs and the lazy sweetness it stirred in her heart. She was laying away that spring. Afterward, she would lay away that sweetness. With a gradual insistence, the storm broke. Sally Carroll felt a film of flakes melt quickly on her eyelashes, and Harry reached over a furry arm and drew down her complicated flannel cap. The small flakes came in skirmish line, and the horse bent his neck patiently as a transparency of white appeared momentarily on his coat. "'Oh, he's cold, Harry,' she said quickly. "'Who? The horse? Oh, no, he isn't. He likes it.' After another ten minutes, they turned a corner and came in sight of their destination. On a tall hill, outlined in vivid, glaring green, against the wintry sky, stood the ice palace. It was three stories in the air, with battlements and embrasures and narrow icicled windows, and the innumerable electric lights inside made a gorgeous transparency of the great central hall. Sally Carroll clutched Harry's hand under the fur robe. It's beautiful, he cried excitedly. My golly, it's beautiful, isn't it? They haven't had one here since eighty-five. Somehow the notion of there not having been one since eighty-five oppressed her. Ice was a ghost, and this mansion of it was surely peopled by those shades of the eighties, with pale faces and blurred, snow-filled hair. Come on, dear, said Harry. She followed him out of the sleigh and waited while he hitched the horse. A party of four, Gordon, Myra, Roger Patton, and another girl, drew up beside them with a mighty jingle of bells. There were quite a crowd already, bundled in fur or sheepskin, shouting and calling to each other as they moved through the snow, which was now so thick that people could scarcely be distinguished a few yards away. 
It's a hundred and seventy feet tall, Harry was saying to a muffled figure beside him as they trudged toward the entrance. Covers six thousand square yards. She caught snatches of conversation. One main hall. Walls twenty to forty inches thick. And the ice cave has almost a mile of... This Canuck who built it. They found their way inside, and dazed by the magic of the great crystal walls, Sally Carroll found herself repeating over and over two lines from Kubla Khan. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. In the great glittering cavern, with the dark shut out, she took a seat on a wooded bench, and the evening's oppression lifted. Harry was right. It was beautiful, and her gaze traveled the smooth surface of the walls, the blocks for which had been selected for their purity and dearness to obtain this opalescent, translucent effect. Look, here we go. Oh, boy, cried Harry. A band in a far corner struck up, Hail, hail, the gang's all here, which echoed over to them in wild, muddled acoustics, and then the lights suddenly went out. Silence seemed to flow down the icy sides and sweep over them. Sally Carroll could still see her white breath in the darkness, and a dim row of pale faces over on the other side. The music eased to a sighing complaint, and from outside drifted in the full-throated remnant chant of the marching clubs. It grew louder like some paean of a Viking tribe traversing an ancient wild. It swelled. They were coming nearer. Then a row of torches appeared, and another, and another, and keeping time with their moccasined feet, a long column of gray Mackinaw figures swept in, snowshoes slung at their shoulders, torches soaring and flickering as their voice rose along the great walls. The gray column ended, and another followed, the light streaming luridly this time over red toboggan caps and flaming crimson Mackinaws, and as they entered, they took up the refrain, then came a long platoon of blue and white, of green, of white, of brown and yellow. Those white ones are the Wakuda Club, whispered Harry eagerly. Those are the men you've met round at dances. The volume of the voices grew. The great cavern was a phantasmagoria of torches waving in great banks of fire, of colors and the rhythm of soft leather steps. The leading column turned and halted. Platoon deploys in front of platoon until the whole procession made a solid flag of flame, and then from thousands of voices burst a mighty shout that filled the air like a crash of thunder and sent the torches wavering. It was magnificent. It was tremendous. To Sally Carroll, it was the North offering sacrifice on some mighty altar to the gray pagan god of snow. As the shout died, the band struck up again, and there came more singing, and then long reverberating cheers by each club. She sat very quiet, listening while the staccato cries rent the stillness, and then she started, for there was a volley of explosion, and great clouds of smoke went up here and there through the cavern, the flashlight photographers at work, and the council was over. With the band at their head, the clubs formed in column once more, took up their chant, and began to march out. "'Come on!' shouted Harry. "'We want to see the labyrinths downstairs before they turn the lights off.' They all rose and started toward the chute. 
Harry and Sally Carroll in the lead, her little mitten buried in his big fur gauntlet. At the bottom of the chute was a long, empty room of ice, with the ceiling so low that they had to stoop, and their hands were parted. Before she realized what he intended, Harry had darted down one of the half-dozen glittering passages that opened into the room and was only a vague receding blot against the green shimmer. Harry! she called. Come on! he cried back. She looked round the empty chamber. The rest of the party had evidently decided to go home. We're already outside somewhere in the blundering snow. She hesitated, and then darted in after Harry. Harry! she shouted. She had reached a turning point thirty feet down. She heard a faint muffled answer far to the left, and with a touch of panic fled toward it. She passed another turning, two more yawning alleys. Harry! No answer. She started to run straight forward, and then turned like lightning and sped back the way she had come, enveloped in a sudden icy terror. She reached a turn, was it here, took the left, and came to what should have been the outlet, into the long, low room, but it was only another glittering passage with darkness at the end. She called again, but the walls gave back a flat, lifeless echo with no reverberations. Retracing her steps, she turned another corner, this time following a wide passage. It was like the green lane between the parted water of the Red Sea, like a damp vault connecting empty tombs. She slipped a little now as she walked, for ice had formed on the bottom of her overshoes. She had to run her gloves along the half-slippery, half-sticky walls to keep her balance. Harry! Still no answer. The sound she made bounced mockingly down to the end of the passage. Then, on an instant, the lights went out, and she was in complete darkness. She gave a small, frightened cry, and sank down into a cold little heap on the ice. She felt her left knee do something as she fell, but she scarcely noticed it, as some deep terror far greater than any fear of being lost settled upon her. She was alone with this presence that came out of the north, the dreary loneliness that rose from ice-bound whalers in the Arctic seas, from smokeless, trackless wastes, where were strewn the whitened bones of adventure. It was an icy breath of death. It was rolling down low across the land to clutch at her. With a furious, despairing energy, she rose again and started blindly down the darkness. She must get out. She might be lost in here for days, freeze to death and lie embedded in the ice like corpses she had read of, kept perfectly preserved until the melting of a glacier. Harry probably thought she had left with the others. He had gone by now. No one would know until next day. She reached pitifully for the wall. Forty inches thick, they had said. Forty inches thick! On both sides of her, along the walls, she felt things creeping, damp souls that haunted this palace, this town, this north. Oh, send somebody, send somebody, she cried aloud. Clark Darrow, he would understand. Or Joe Ewan. She couldn't be left here to wander forever, to be frozen, heart, body, and soul. This her, this Sally Carroll. Why, she was a happy thing. She was a happy little girl. She liked warmth and summer and Dixie. These things were foreign foreign. You're not crying, something said aloud, 
you'll never cry any more. Your tears would just freeze. All tears freeze up here. She sprawled full length on the ice. Oh, God, she faltered. A long single file of minutes went by, and with a great weariness, she felt her eyes closing. Then someone seemed to sit down near her and take her face in warm, soft hands. She looked up gratefully. Why, it's Marjorie Lee, she crooned softly to herself. I knew you'd come. It really was Marjorie Lee, and she was just as Sally Carroll had known she would be, with a young white brow and wide welcoming eyes and a hoop skirt of some soft material that was quite comforting to rest on. Marjorie Lee. It was getting darker now and darker. All those tombstones ought to be repainted, sure enough, only that would spoil em, of course. Still, you ought to be able to see him. Then, after a succession of moments that went fast and then slow, but seemed to be ultimately resolving themselves into a multitude of blurred rays converging toward a pale yellow sun, she heard a great cracking noise break her newfound stillness. It was the sun. It was a light, a torch, and a torch beyond that, and another one, and voices, and a face took flesh below the torch. Heavy arms raised her, and she felt something on her cheek. It felt wet. Someone had seized her and was rubbing her face with snow. How ridiculous! With snow! Sally Carroll! Sally Carroll! It was dangerous Dan McGrew, and two other faces she didn't know. Child, child, we've been looking for you two hours. Harry's half crazy. Things came rushing back into place. The singing the torches, the great shout of the marching clubs. She squirmed in Patton's arms and gave a long, low cry. Oh, I want to get out of here. I'm going back home. Take me home. Her voice rose to a scream that sent a chill to Harry's heart as he came racing down the next passage. Tomorrow, she cried with delirious, unstrained passion. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow! End of part five.